0: What is the song tonight? I want to give it all to you. Lee in Tahi is with us. Lee, kia ora. kia ora. What? Did you get it?
1: I did, I did. I got it because it's a little artefact of my childhood. I was only nine years old when that song came out.
0: Yeah. And,
1: you know, that opening line, when you quote it in isolation, you realise what a sort of ballsy ambiguous, slightly sexy line it is to open a rock song with. So oh. kind of stuck in my memory all these years.
0: It's very rock and roll, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, and if you're a bit younger, you're saying, well, what's going on? You know, what's, what's the message here? What's the secret? Um, but it's an absolute banger, isn't it? It's such an anthem, isn't it, Lee?
1: I Was Made for Loving You is an absolute anthem, yes, because Kiss was massive... When I was hearing that song as a nine-year-old, my sisters were into Kiss, and I remember that I think oh. they came to New Zealand with all the makeup and that. So you never forgot that band because they had the makeup shtick.
0: You ought to see them live, Simon Wilson. This is your era.
2: It is my era, and I have not seen them live. But of course, I love the song.
0: Though I am surprised to hear Lee say that the, 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 the lyrics are slightly ambiguous. I what's ambiguous about them? <laughs> well, tonight I want to. Uh, give, give it, it all, all it to it you, what, 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 what do you want to give? What do you want <laughs> what, to give? A present, a a message. Um, have you gone out to the mailbox? Yeah, that'll be The postbox is full of mail. Am I not rightly?
1: Absolutely. and Maybe Jim May Simmons was referring to the full length of his tongue, which was famously long, of course.
0: That's right that's right hey good on you lee thanks for being with us uh it is uh, 25 to 5 the panel before we jump into the next uh, topic i just want to do the rounds we've been doing this uh every day uh, a little bit of a holiday season reading you know many of us will be wanting to shut off the news and focus on a jolly good book so round the panel on this georgie stiliano what's a pick for us
3: Um, So this is an absolute must read. It's called City of Lies, Love, Sex, Death and the Search for Truth in Tehran. It's written by a British-Iranian journalist, um, Ramita Navai. I hope I um, haven't messed up the pronunciation of that too badly. And it's essentially eight very ordinary people in this one street in this bustling capital city based on extensive interviews. And it's incredible. It's it's difficult to read um, in parts. But the tagline that I think is, is amazing is a place where ordinary people are forced to lead extraordinary lives. I haven't read it for a few years. But I'm going to reread it, and given what is going on um, in Iran at the moment, I'd say it's a must read.
0: City of Lies, Love, Sex, Death, and the Search for Truth in Tehran. Thank you, Georgie. Simon Wilson.
2: I'm going to just rush you through two. um, My favourite book uh, that I've read recently is uh, Catherine Chidgey's The Axeman's Carnival which is about a talking magpie called Tama which is short for Tamaguchi um, which is one of the many many jokes in the book. Now this is a story that's so funny but it is also about sexual abuse, sexual violence uh, and the stresses that people in rural New Zealand are under. It's a fabulous novel deeply recommended. The Axeman's Carnival. My other book is The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengro, this is a book that goes right back into prehistory to look at the way in which societies have developed and it turns on its head the whole idea that we used to be hunter-gatherers and then we became farmers and out of farming we developed civilization. The authors here say actually there were sophisticated cultures among hunter-gatherers and what farming and the rise of cities that farming made possible brought was hierarchy, which wasn't necessarily a good thing, uh, mm. but it was hierarchy, not civilization itself that it brought. If you want a deep but very entertaining, very wonderfully anecdotal read, uh, a big book uh, over Christmas on The Dawn of Everything is
0: my pick. Oh, love it. What great picks. Time to get into some reading uh, this season. Fantastic. Thank you both. The panel on RNZ National. Now, Back to the roads. Time has run out for motorists to have their say on a raft of speed reduction proposals across the Waikato region, including busy summer highways such as State Highway 23 between Hamilton and Raglan. Proposed speed limit changes will bring that stretch to a limit of 80 kilometres per hour. 20% of New Zealand's annual deaths and serious injuries occur in the Waikato. With us is AA spokesperson Dylan Thompson. Kia ora Dylan. Kia ora. First up, traffic is top of mind this holiday season. We're bringing it up all the time here. The first thing that should be top of mind is actually getting to your destination, right?
4: Yes, absolutely. Um, And I think the key thing is I always talk about um, wanting to travel there safely, but also wanting to travel there enjoyably, and um, and you know I can't think of anything worse than at the holiday time, spending hours um, getting yourself all wound up and aggressive and stressed behind the wheel. So um, you know letting yourself uh, take a bit more time, knowing that it's going to take a bit more time, and driving uh, a bit slower than you normally would um, is probably going to mean you're going to get there. Feeling better than you would have otherwise.
0: So, taking a bit of time, this is all part of what one might call the big slowdown.
4: Well, reducing speeds is really um, you know the core part of the government's road to zero strategy. So, um, the the interim state highway speed management plan that uh, has just finished consultation is the first time that um, that we've seen the new approach being taken um, where we're going to see these bigger plans than people have been used to in New Zealand looking at um, next year we'll see every road controlling authority in the country including Waka Kotahi for State Highways doing a plan for the next three years with any speed reductions that they're going to be looking at on their roads um, as well as infrastructure improvements and and some speed cam replacements as well.
0: Before uh, I get to Simon and Georgie, they'll have views on this, as will our listeners, what do you say to those who go, look, uh, it's actually bad roads rather than speed being the problem? For example, we're talking about Waikato here. The Waikato Expressway, Expressway, one of the highest speed limits in the country, yet one of the safest roads in the country, doesn't that tell you that it's all about the roads and from personal experience, when you drive down that Waikato Expressway it, at 110, it feels jolly safe uh, Well
4: it's not all about the roads and um, it's really not about one thing on its own but um, but obviously the quality of the roads has a huge impact of, on safety the quality of the vehicle you're in um, but also the speed you're travelling at and driver behaviour is is you know, equally important. So it's, it's all of those things coming together. Yes, if you're driving on the Waikato Expressway, um, because it's a modern, well-engineered and designed road, um, it is very safe in terms of having very, very few fatal or serious crashes. Um, obviously, a lot of the highways in New Zealand are not at those standards.
0: OK, Georgie.
3: I'd like to share a little anecdote with you all. And this is important because this was 2004, so we'd just emigrated from from the U.K., and my dad was, was driving us up to Picton, I think, for the for the first time. We had two kayaks on, on top of the car, and it was windy as hell going up some quite hilly terrain. And we were pulled over by the police for going too slow. And I remember my dad saying, Are you serious, mate? Going too slow? I've got two kayaks and two kids in the back. And the cop, I will never forget this, said, People will get impatient, and you'll cause accidents. Now, fundamentally aren't we just really bad drivers?
4: Hello? Oh, was that, was that a question for me? Yes. yes. I mean, aren't we
3: just impatient, bad drivers?
4: Well, my answer to that would be that um, I don't necessarily think New Zealanders are that much worse than other drivers around um, around the world, actually. And I think we're all capable of being... Good drivers sometimes, and worse drivers other times, depending on a lot of a lot of things that are that are going on in our lives. So I don't think there's anybody who is a fantastic driver absolutely all of the time. I think we all have our moments where we might be thinking about other things, distracted, um, and you know, wound up about um, some things that are going on at work or in our life or things like that. Um, if we're being honest, I think we can all say we have times when uh, when our driving could and should have been better. So I think it, it really varies. Simon? Well, Dylan's just made the point that I made it um,
2: much earlier. I think that, that you know most accidents in this country, most crashes in this country, they're not accidents. Most crashes uh, involve drivers who are distracted, and not necessarily driving badly. Um, you know, the... the question about the condition of the roads the other drivers on the roads those are all the, the realities that we all have to contend with and therefore all of us have a responsibility to, to drive carefully now, but one of the things that makes us more careful drivers is that we don't go too fast it's partly because if you have a crash at speed your chances of a serious injury or death are much higher, uh, and partly because if you're speeding, you there is an increased risk of your having that crash. And that's, of course, not true on the on the new motorways. Uh, you're quite right about the Waikato Expressway. It's 110 kilometres. Uh, it's a safe road. Um, but we can't... The, the money that is spent to make roads like that is enormous. We can't say that's the solution for our roads. We have tens of thousands of kilometres more roads that cannot be turned into highways like that. Now We've got to have rules that will apply everywhere.
0: Yeah, um, Dylan, uh, in terms of uh, other things, because you are calling for uh, a targeted rather than a more universal approach. Am I right regarding the, uh, the, 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 the speed limit?
4: Well, I mean, there's no doubt that we're going to have a lot of roads in New Zealand that are going to be um, having proposals coming up soon for lower speed limits than people are used to. And um, and really, from the A's perspective, we take a case-by-case approach to those. Um, there's going to be some speed reductions that we support, and there's going to be some others where we can look at. And the key thing we sort of measure it is, do we think that it's going to improve safety? Do we think that it's going to make sense to people and have good levels of public support because we really want to have speed limits that are going to not need heavy enforcement to get people to travel at so you know on some of the highways that we're looking at we think 80 kilometers an hour is is going to tick those boxes it's going to make reasonable sense to people it's going to deliver safety improvements and there's a a good need for it Um, on some other roads we think um, looking at 80, kilo, 80 kilometres an hour is probably going to be a bit of a, a stretch. And um, and so we think there's a place for some 90k limits or looking at some engineering improvements in other cases for more strategic highways. So
0: Here's an idea that was brought up in terms of innovation because you talked about innovation. What about this, Dylan, uh, panel? Uh, there has been a call by uh, a couple of commentators to require headlights to be on at all times, thinking that would make a big difference in driver safety. What do you make of that? And do you think something like that might be trialled? Well,
4: that to me again, yeah, yeah Dylan. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, we we get that from time to time, and, and certainly some of the um, Scandinavian countries or, or countries in the northern hemisphere have had um, some some rules around that. Um, we don't, we don't necessarily think that um, trying to you know, legislate it and, and make a law that people have to put their headlights on is going to be the best way to go,
0: yeah. um,
4: but we, um, it's a message that we do try and promote, um, especially through the winter months and, and different times where it's not just a case of using your headlights at night. You can use them during the day when visibility is is poorer and greyer. And um, and an easy rule of thumb that we often talk about is if you've got your windscreen wipers on, put your headlights on as well.
0: Good on, Dylan. Thanks for your time. That's uh, AA spokesperson Dylan Thompson there. Uh, Having driven.
4: Can I I just. Yeah, one quick comment. What what, what
2: we were talking about just there with with Dylan. But um, it's. One school of thought is that you should uh, have the appropriate speed limit for every stretch of road. And another school of thought is that what that leads to is constant changes in the speed limit. Every time you go around a corner, you've got to get, you're allowed to go a bit faster, or you're allowed to hit, or you have to go a bit slower. Now, and that annoys a whole lot of people as well. Now, and there's no right answer to that because what we're doing at the moment is we're trying to develop a change in the culture and Mm -hmm. it's just like all those other things where we changed our culture where we now recognize that actually kids should be drinking water in school we now know that of course that smoking's bad all of those things this is this is one of those things and it will take a while um but it doesn't mean it's not worth doing we very good a higher road toll than almost every other developed country in the world and we do need to address it
0: 13 to 5, you are on the panel this Monday afternoon. Now, Japan, completely different topic here. Very interesting. What about this? Japan has decided, you might not have heard about this, they've decided to discharge nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean for the next 30 years. A stance that has been condemned by a Pacific alliance. The government said that work to clean up radioactive contamination would take up to 40 years this, uh, of the three reactors at the Fukushima nuclear power plant uh, complex there. Now, the issue was raised at a Nuclear Connections Across all Oceania conference at Otago University. To discuss is, with us is Dr. Carly Birch from the Otago University Centre for Sustainability. Dr. Birch, welcome. Thank you. As I understand, 1.3 million tonnes of radioactive wastewater to be discharged into the ocean from next year. That, to me, on the face of it, sounds quite extraordinary. Many Kiwis might not know that. Tell us about this.
5: Yes. um, Thank you for having me to talk about this important topic. So I'm speaking on behalf of um, this working group. I'm one of the members of this emerging alliance of frontline community members, academics, legal experts, NGOs, and activists from across the Pacific. And at the Nuclear Connections Across Oceania conference, we began um, writing this statement of solidarity against Tokyo Electric Power Company or TEPCO's plan to discharge these more than 1.3 million tons of radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean starting next year. And again, this um, this was approved by the Japanese government earlier this year. Some technical background. The radioactive wastewater contains a number of uranium derived radionuclides. So these are radionuclides produced through the nuclear fission of uranium. And the water contains these uranium derived radionuclides because it was cooled. It was used to cool the damaged reactors at TEPCO Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant since the onset of the nuclear disaster in 2011. So you may have seen photographs of the large water tanks now surrounding the nuclear power plants, many of which are leaking. Uh, And most people are probably not aware that this discharge will be happening for approximately 30 years. So it's currently planned from the Japanese... Spring next year in 2023 to at least 2050.
0: My goodness gracious me, Georgie Stigliano.
3: Well, I think it's great that we're talking about this because it, it was something I had not heard of. So I, I'm quite shocked by it all. And obviously the argument from japan's point of view as well it's our jurisdiction but you know the ocean does move and yeah. i think the fact that we aren't really able to probably quantify the potential damage enough to essentially scare people into action but mm. th- the question for you is has in terms of the government response or an engagement that 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 your group is is having what's that been like so far
5: So we've actually had responses from TEPCO, the Japanese government, and the New Zealand government. Um, For TEPCO and the Japanese government, they're actually getting pretty upset that we're using the term radioactive wastewater. Mm. But we do this to actually describe the material reality of the water itself, which this can be completely obfuscated when it's referred to as treated or safe water, as Mm. TEPCO and the Japanese government prefer So we use the term wastewater because regardless of whether it is classified through dominant nuclear science as being high-level or low-level nuclear waste, the water is a waste product of TEPCO's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, and as such, TEPCO has a responsibility for handling it responsibly. And we use the term radioactive because even after the water is filtered through this ALPS technology that TEPCO is using, it still contains uranium-derived radionuclides such as tritium, which is uh, radioactive hydrogen-3, iodine-129, ruthenium-106, strontium-90, and many other radioactive particles. Mm. So when we use the term radioactive wastewater, we're simply referring to the material reality that we are dealing with um, and pointing out that just because the wastewater is filtered... Does not automatically mean that the water is free from these radionuclides. It simply means that it's under the this threshold limit that they've
0: set. Right. Okay, um, Simon Wilson is bringing you in uh, Japan decided to, to discharge nuclear wastewater into the ocean for the next thirty years from spring of next year. Simon,
2: well, I'm just wondering what their alternatives are because you know it is shocking to hear that that um, dump it in the ocean is a solution for anything these mm. days.
5: Um,
2: but, but, what should Japan be doing?
5: You can store
3: it on land, can't you? Yes, you can store it on land
5: that is much more expensive um but it is the option that we are actually advocating for that we don't think that dumping it into the ocean is the solution to this problem. Well, uh
2: storing, uh, doc- storing it on land or storing it underground is it, is there is there a significant
5: difference or Um, I feel like so one of the things we point out in our statement is that Japan hasn't actually considered any of the other possible online storage methods. So we think that that's important that they propose some other options. And so far, they've been saying that putting it into the ocean is the only option that they have. And we don't think that is enough to say um, that it's safe for that reason. And Another thing we point out in our statement is that they haven't, the Japanese government or TEPCO, they, neither of them have conducted an environmental impact assessment as required by international law, which is highly problematic, even though there are predictive models which show that the radioactive particles that are going to be released will spread to the northern Pacific.
0: Well, Carly, I hope we'll be hearing a lot more from this uh, and from the New Zealand government's response. I'm sure you will. Dr Birch, for now, though, Kia thanks for your time. Thank you very much. So there we have it. Uh, From next year for the next 30 years, uh, Japan is discharging nuclear waste into the Pacific Ocean there. Uh, 1.3 million tonnes of radioactive waste water. You're on the panel on RNZ National. Thanks so much for you. haven't sort of been able to get too much feedback this afternoon, but I really appreciate uh, your company uh, today, and we're with you right through to Friday, is it? Anyway, across the country, people have got their summer travel plans locked and loaded. Now that the world is open, more New Zealanders are looking to travel than ever, but far less usual are heading to Australia. That's according to data from Southern Cross Travel Insurance. Uh, New Zealanders are looking to travel farther and they're staying away longer to discuss. This is Joe McCauley from Southern Cross Travel Insurance. She's the Chief Executive. Kia ora Jo. Kia ora. how are so, you? Good, thank you. It's just an interesting bit of a snapshot, isn't it, uh, on uh, how, why and where we are travelling. But needless to say, the first thing I, uh, I get from this is that, um, yes, people are wanting to get overseas again.
6: I think people have been desperate to get overseas. Um, really, what, what we're observing is, is, as you say, a lot less people are choosing to go to Australia than what they would previously, and oh. they're going further afield. So we're seeing a real increase in people buying travel insurance policies to get over to Europe, in particular the UK as well. Mm. I'm
0: noticing this, Georgie. Quite a few of my colleagues, friends, they are, you know, they are booking there. I, I have no desire to go. No interest. I'm going to stay in New Zealand for another 2 or 3 years. I couldn't care less Ride about a trip out. a trip to Sicily. What about you, Georgie?
3: Yeah, I'd definitely with what's going on in the UK right now, I have no desire to head over there. But also it's so expensive. Exactly. I, I, I genuinely couldn't believe it. We were balking at the prices of, of trying to get to Scotland to visit my partner's family next Christmas. And I just, it's phenomenal. So, I mean, obviously people are choosing, it was probably what we were discussing earlier, that people are maybe not buying homes and renovating them. So they're thinking, okay, where, where can we spend our money? So they're heading further afield and, and maybe they don't, they don't come back.
0: Experiential stay there, Joe. A word from Simon. Um,
2: well, uh, uh, slightly unlike you, Wallace, I would love to travel overseas, but the okay. idea terrifies me. Mm. <laughs> it, it uh, I, I don't know why people keep saying we're in a post-COVID age. I really don't. Um, and, you know, as Georgie says, the, the price of travel now is extraordinary. Um, it feels to me like it's not the right time, but clearly there are people who... Uh, have found the money somehow. You know, yes, maybe not buying so many houses as part of that. But you know, what, what,
0: what is the what what, what, what? what do you say on that, uh, on Joe? In terms of the uh, anxiety around travelling uh, compared to pre-pandemic, what are we seeing here? Simon's hesitancy there. He wants to go, but a little bit, a little hesitant.
6: Yeah, we are we are certainly seeing that um Kiwis are feeling a lot more anxious about travel than they were before. Um though we did a piece of research in the Southern Cross group um which was released in August and you know we're finding that seventy three percent of Kiwis are more worried about travelling overseas because of the pandemic and fifty one percent find planning a holiday stressful. I think yep. people are just so much more aware now of what could go wrong. Um, when traveling overseas. And so, and what we're seeing is um, consumers are placing a lot more value and a lot more priority in thinking about purchasing travel insurance than what they were prior to the pandemic.
0: Joe, kia ora. thanks for your time. That's Joe McCauley there the Southern Cross Cross Travel Insurance Chief Executive there, just a bit of a snapshot on uh, whether or not we're looking overseas to travel, and the answer is yes, we are. But if you were to go somewhere, Simon, overseas, where would it be? (laughs) You mean where would
2: I most like to go right now? Yeah. Where do I think would be safest? Where
0: where would you like to go? I'm not sure where I
2: think would be safest. The, The place that I have not been in my life that I would love to go is Scandinavia. Um, so that's kind of on my uh, that's that's top of my list of I do hope one day.
0: Wonderful. What about you, Georgie?
3: I want to go to Antarctica. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know the catch the boat from from South America, and, and um, I just feel like it might not it might not be there um in a couple more decades. So I'd quite like to make it over there.
0: Good on you both, thanks for being with us, wonderful stuff Uh, That's Georgie Stiliano and Simon Wilson, wonderful and look, uh, an apology for the phone lines this afternoon there You're on the panel, I'm back tomorrow 3.45, Checkpoint is next, have a good night